if you have a lot of money that you can invest to create passive income, maybe you could do something like portfolio income or rental income, right? So you can invest it in the stock market, you can make dividends, you can invest it in a rental property or even a turnkey rental property service so that you don't have to do anything and just collect the checks. It's mailbox money. Now, if you have more time and you don't really have money, then you're going to want to look at some other different categories. For example, Royalty income is a perfect one for people that have time, but not a lot of money. So this is something like writing a book, creating an online course, mm -hmm. creating digital products that can be downloaded off Etsy that you can create once and that people can download again and again. When I wrote Money Honey, it took nine months. That's including the period of time that I quit. I did it around my full-time job in the evenings and on the weekends, and I spent less than $600 to launch the book. So it's a very attainable income stream for many people. Straight from the boardroom to the microphone, I'm April Garcia, and this is Pivot Me, easily applied tools and hacks to get you ahead. This isn't just a podcast. This is an upgrade for your life. Helping good people become even better. This is Pivot Me. Rachel Richards is the best-selling author of two books on financial literacy, Money, Honey, and Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. She's a former financial advisor and a real estate investor with almost 40 units. Most impressively, Rachel quit her job and retired at the age of 27 and now has helped thousands of people work their way out of financial despair. Welcome to Pivot Me, Rachel. Thank you so much, April. Glad to have you. So, so tell us about um, tell us about yourself and tell us about your your backstory. Yeah. So, I am a lot of different things, and you already mentioned some of them. I'm also a former financial advisor. I've always been passionate about helping people. It's what I did throughout high school and college, reading books and then passing on my education to my friends and family. And um, I worked in corporate finance for a few years, but finally last year when I was 27 years old, I was able to quit my job and retire. And I'm now living off over $15,000 per month in passive income. Most of that comes in from two passive income streams, although I have four or five now. So most of it comes from my rental income, from the rental properties we own, and then my book royalty income. So that's just a high-level overview of me. Sure, absolutely. So when so we, we're, we're getting right into it. So when um, did you purposely seek out real estate for the passive income? I mean, I, I, I know that's the result now, but did you go, I'm going to go into real estate because I want passive income to be able to leave my day job? Yes, exactly. That was actually my initial plan to achieve financial independence was to do it all through real estate investing. Some people will do real estate and they'll flip properties. And that's a great way to build up cash quickly and make a lot of money. But mm -hmm. I wanted specifically the passive income so that I could retire and become financially independent. So my initial goal with that was I was thinking about this in college. I wanted to buy a single family home every year for 15 years, all on 15 year mortgages. And then I figured after that 15-year period, when I was in my mid-30s, I would retire. Um, it's funny, though, because it obviously ended up happening a lot a lot faster than that. Mm -hmm. So um, that was something that we were talking about offline, or um, maybe it was through email, but that's a similarity. I got into real estate investing young, too. I'm curious how you got into that. Is that Did someone introduce you to it? Was it a book? What made you think, this is, this is what I want to pursue? 
I feel like the first book I read about real estate investing was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because yeah. he touched on it a little bit. And I love I love that book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really got into reading. I We were just talking about this. I, I definitely consume a lot of info, but I also execute on that. And that's that I think that's a big difference for people that, you know, have a lot of success and achieve a lot of things versus those that maybe don't. So I was reading a ton, learning everything I could. I even took a job in real estate and got my real estate license. And then I finally started investing in real estate in 2017. Okay. So that was fairly recent. Yeah. So that's unusual that you would invest in real estate for three years and already been in place. I mean, in addition to book royalties, but again, line shares in, in passive real estate, it's unusual to be only investing in such a short period of time and have so much passive income. Yeah, we were able to scale it really fast. We went from zero to, I think, 39 units, like 39 doors in about two or three years. And in any given month, in a normal month, we're making anywhere from eight to $12,000 per profit in rental income. And obviously that has changed with coronavirus. We've definitely been impacted, but normally that's how much we're making. Gotcha. So how did you learn? So so Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, sort of introduces you to the idea of, oh, there's this other way and this is, but it's not necessarily a how-to guide. Like it's more kind of an overview. How did you actually learn to do those steps? I worked with a real estate investor for a little bit when I was between jobs and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Mm -hmm. So I worked with him. He was doing all flipping, but I still learned a ton. And then I worked for a real estate agent and I was kind of her admin assistant, which at the time I was so bitter about because I kept thinking, you know, I have a finance degree. I'm overqualified for this. (laughs) Like that's, I was a little snotty about it, but in hindsight, I learned a lot about the closing process. I learned about how to be a good buyer's agent. And Mm -hmm. that has really, helped me in my real estate journey. I've never had my license to work with clients. It's only been for myself and my own purposes with investing. But those two jobs, even if at the time I thought I was wasting my time, it's funny how in hindsight, you can sort of connect the dots. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I, I, you said something, I've got to pull on that thread a little bit more. So I I totally hear what you're saying about being in this role and going, well, I have this finance degree. What helped you succeed more? The experience, the -the on-the-job experience or your finance degree? The -the on-the-job experience, 100%. Glad we don't know that when we're younger, right? It's too bad. Well, I mean, we're all told, go to college, get a degree. Here's how much you're going to make. I mean, Mm -hmm. I remember everyone, my professors telling me, you have a financial economics degree. You're going to be making 60 grand when you graduate. Okay, I was making $32,000 in my first job out of college with like a 3.99 GPA, a ton of great experience. I was at the top of my class and I was still only making in the 30s. So it's just hard because you have your expectations set and then reality hits and you you might not be making as much as you thought you would be. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. The academic world doesn't always translate into the um, professional world. Um, and I think we think it's a little bit more seamless than it is. Um, but then when you get out there, you're like, oh, wait a second. It's these other skills that maybe I've picked up at work or communication skills or negotiation skills I just picked up in life that really end up serving us so so significantly. Oh, my gosh, for sure. I feel like yeah. my first few years out of college, even I just, I was a total disaster. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Everything you learn in college or everything I learned, it seemed it was more theoretical than practical. So it was definitely a a tough adjustment period. Yeah, absolutely. Um, With, with, when you started actually purchasing it, did you, I'm just, I'm just thinking about when I started purchasing real estate and I was young and people didn't take you seriously. Initially, I remember going to my first closing and I had, (laughs) 
and like overalls and a pixie cut. And I was, I looked very young. I was 19, but I looked like seven, 16, 17. Um, and people were like, Where, where's your parents? Who's signing for you? I, I remember that. So how did you experience that? And how did you overcome that? Because I imagine you, you probably had a pretty big dose of imposter syndrome when you were doing that. Oh my gosh. Imposter syndrome has haunted me with everything I've ever done in my life for sure. Mm -hmm. But the, the job that I felt it at the most, I wouldn't say I felt imposter syndrome, but just dealing with being a young girl in mm -hmm. a man's world was when I was a financial advisor because mm -hmm. I graduated college and my first job out of college was a financial advisor and I was 21 years old. So here I am, a 21-year-old, telling all these old people how to invest their, their life savings. It was tough. I had to, luckily, I had previous sales experience. I was telling you I, I used to sell Cutco knives, mm -hmm. and I paid my way through school. So I learned how to handle rejection, and I learned that it wasn't personal. I learned it's just a numbers game. Not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's going to say yes. But as long as you stay persistent, you'll find the ones who will. Yeah. Oh, it's so valuable. It's interesting because so much of what you're saying is it's the on the job experience. You know, it's cut go. It's being a financial advisor. It's working for this real estate person that really um, highlights the path we're supposed to go on. And so, so many, there's definitely a thread of uh, so many very successful people now do not work in their, in their chosen degree. Right. I mean, that's that's a that's a thing. My degree is in biology and chemistry. I don't work in that at all. And that and that comes up over and over again. I was just interviewing someone a couple of days ago that their degree is in psychology and now they run 50 different businesses, all unrelated to psychology. And uh, so we can't get connected to that path that we're on just because we've been on it for a while. We have to be aware of, oh, I need to go in this direction and maybe my degree's in this or maybe I've been working really hard in this one direction. But it's OK to switch paths. And you're a great example of switching paths and how well it served you. Well, thank you. And I, I do think it's tough to ask an 18 year old to predict what they're going to do for the rest of their life and to predict right. what their major should be. I mean, it's absurd. Right. So I think, you know, for young people, it's just keeping in mind to be flexible. Things might change and they might not turn out how you want them, but that could be because they're going to turn out even better. Yeah. So when you wrote your first book, what, what was the, uh, the catalyst for writing, writing that first one? So here's the thing. I was, at the point, all my family and friends were still coming to me for financial advice. This was after I was a financial advisor mm -hmm. and I love to help people. So that part was great. At the same time, I began to wonder, well, why aren't they reading books or learning on their own? Mm -hmm. And then I realized, oh yeah, personal finance is boring. <laughs> it's overwhelming. It's intimidating. I mean, no one likes to learn about it. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, well, how can I make this topic sassy and fun and simple? Mm -hmm. And that's where the idea for Money Honey came from. So it was super exciting when it came to me. I remember just sitting down and the words just were pouring out of me at first. It was definitely something I felt very compelled to do. Mm -hmm. and um, clearly struck a nerve with female millennials because it has been more successful than I ever would have imagined. Wow, that's fantastic. And you decided to do it again with your second book. I did, yes. <laughs> what was the catalyst for that? Uh, so the, my second book is Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. And it was at the point where I was about to quit my job. And mm -hmm. people started asking me, because by then I had built up a little bit of a following of my first book. I had a platform. Mm -hmm. So people were like, oh, you're quitting your job. How are you doing this? Like, what are you doing? How are you investing in real estate? How are you making this money from your books? So I became obsessed with passive income, the whole concept. Now I think it's become quite a buzzword. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I define passive income is it's money that is earned with little to no ongoing effort. Mm -hmm. Is it a get rich quick scheme? No, absolutely not. It takes time or money 
invested to create a passive income stream. But once you have it going, it becomes a lot more hands-off. So I started researching all these different passive income streams. And that's why I decided to write my second book to tell, kind of tell my story, how I did it. But most importantly, outline, I outlined 28 different passive income models. So trust me when I say there is something out there for everybody. For sure. For sure. That's incredibly valuable because again, there are people that are in pursuit of it, but it's hard to know what actually works, what will what will fit them and their unique situation, but also what really works. Because there's a lot of stuff out there that isn't very effective. Um, and we've it's it's hard to kind of separate those things out, but it sounds like you've separated it out for your audience. Yeah, I've just tried to make it easy, you know, and really give them a guide of, okay, there's all these passive income ideas, which one should I be doing? And I think mm-hmm. it really starts with asking yourself, do I have more time or do I have more money? Because you mm-hmm. will need one or the other. Now, if you're sure. anything like I was a few years ago, you would have said, I have neither. <laughs> so <laughs> the next question to ask is which one would be easier to create? Would it be easier to free up more time or to have more money? And that's kind of where you start. Sure. No, that makes complete sense. Um, it's interesting, though, you you pursued it so so aggressively and so young. Is it that you really just didn't want to have a day job? Is it that you really wanted to feel secure in your financial future? Like what what gave you the fire in your belly? So here's the thing. And I'll I'll talk about kind of my big pivot in my life, which actually actually happened at a very young age but it's been the catalyst for everything I've done. Mm -hmm. So it really happened in middle school. And um, I remember, I grew up in a wealthy county. I went to this prestigious high school where people would literally get BMWs for their 16th birthday. And my family had a few years financially where it just seemed like everything went wrong. My parents couldn't catch a break. So we downsized, we got rid of you know, the extra car, we did all these things, we stopped going on vacations, we literally didn't go out to eat at restaurants anymore. So I felt at a very young age that I didn't fit, fit in. And that is not how you wanna feel in middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. So I definitely was self-conscious about things. I remember thinking to myself, I don't wanna end up like everyone else struggling with money. I don't mm-hmm. want to have to operate on a strict budget. I don't want to have to borrow money from family and friends to make it to my next paycheck. I mm-hmm. want it to be different. And I realized then that what I did then could either set me up for wealth or for poverty. Mm-hmm. So I started taking things really seriously. I started reading everything I could. I found a way to pay my way through school and graduate without debt. I started investing in real estate. And it's it's all because I have this fear, this fear of not having enough money, of not being able to take care of myself or, or my loved ones if they need it. And that fear, although I think I've gotten past that at this point, and I, mm-hmm. I know I have enough money now, I, I do still think it's probably, you know, in my subconscious somewhere. But that's what has driven me to do all the things I've done. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's always pain or pleasure that drives us, right? Because when we're comfortable, we don't take action. But when we're in pain, we'll take action to move away from it. And or if there's something really pleasurable on the side, like, you know, I just really wanted to have this yacht or jet or whatever it is, like we're, we're moving towards or away from something. Um, and I find a lot of times when it comes to financial abundance, people are moving away from something, either an experience that they had or experience that they were afraid they were about to have. And that's what really gave them that fire to keep pushing ahead. Uh, was that, let me ask you this, was that supported? Because a lot of time we talk a lot about personal development on, on Pivot Me. And one of the things that we discuss is that that's not always celebrated until you cross the finish line. 
Like people will be there for you when you cross the finish line, but in the, in the hustle, in the, whether it's late nights or just doing things differently than maybe the way that you're raised to, or doing things differently than the way your friends are doing, um, that always can be a bit of a struggle. Was that supported or what was that process like for you? Yeah, I think it was probably supported more so than maybe what other people have experienced because I, I, when I think back, I think the overall vibe was like, okay, Rachel, you know, that that's weird, but you know, you do you, whatever. So <laughs> more of kind of standing on the sidelines being like, what is she doing? But, yeah. but also being supportive at the same time. Um, yeah. and, you know, especially my parents, they've always been very supportive. I think they've learned to just stay out of my way with things. <laughs> like if I'm going to set my mind to do something, they stay out of my way. That's how it was with the Cutco. Because you can imagine my mm-hmm. mom was less than thrilled up about me selling sharp objects to strangers. So, but I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pay my my way through school. And she was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> is that door to door? How is that? Um, It's by appointment. So you get by referred. Okay. You start kind of with people you know, and then you get referred yeah. out. But are you going to businesses or are you going to people's houses? People's houses. God, your mom must have hated that. Yeah. Yeah. She was not, she wasn't thrilled, I will say. Wow. Um, but it was great. You know, I got to eat like cheesecake at people's houses and cocktail shrimp and I was living the life selling Cutco. Oh my God. What that that had to be a pretty big deviation. Like what got you into that? I mean, that that's not usually what um someone right out of high school or just in college will do. Yeah. I know. It was crazy. So When I graduated high school, I was sitting here looking at these two colleges I wanted to go to, doing the math in my head because I'd already been aware of finance and pretty responsible. And I was freaking out because I didn't want to graduate with tens of thousands of dollars in student debt. I mean, I knew people at the time that were 30, 40, 50, still paying off their student loans. And Mm -hmm. I saw how detrimental it could be to your financial future. So I totally was panicked feeling a little bit helpless because I didn't know how I was going to accomplish this. Um, I did have scholarships to cover some of it, but I still needed to make up $10,000 per year in tuition. So I was working at American Eagle at the time, part-time, making maybe $200 per paycheck. And so clearly that wasn't going to cut it. (laughs) And that summer before college, I, I I got this interview with Cutco. So I went in it's super weird, obviously, at first. I was like, what is going on here? But then I, I began to think about it. And I was like, that was the first time I'd been introduced to something where the harder you work, the more money you make. Mm-hmm. And I knew I could outwork anybody. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I, I set a sales record that summer in Louisville, Kentucky, and sold enough Cutco where I made $10,000 that summer. So that's how I wow. paid my way through school. Did it just completely change your perspective about like the, the, the value of your time? Like, oh, I could actually work really hard to make $10,000 where I was accustomed to making $200 a check. Yes, it totally changed my perspective. And Mm -hmm. it really made me realize that time is your most valuable resource, not money. Obviously, if you if you if you're lacking one or the other, one will feel like the most valuable resource at the time, but you can't ever get your time back. You can always make another dollar, but you can't create another second in your life. So it definitely made me think about how I wanted to trade my time for money a little bit differently and realizing that I could make you know, $7 and 25 cents an hour at American Eagle, or I could literally make $500 in a single hour long appointment selling a Cutco set. 
I was like, yeah, I want to do this other thing because I can make a lot more money. <laughs> it's way better. Yeah. So you talked about the pivot that sort of got you onto this train of thought, um, which was which was very insightful um, in middle school and high school. Was there a pivotal moment in um, sort of once you were on this trajectory? Was there a moment that you're like, eh, maybe this isn't the right thing. Maybe I should throw in the towel or a major setback because in this journey, no doubt there was a lot of setbacks. Um, was there a pivotal moment like that for you? I've had so many of them, so many, so many obstacles, struggles, setbacks. One that comes to mind is when, after I started writing Money Honey, about four months in, I by then I was telling myself things like, your writing is crap. Who do you think you are, Rachel, to write a book about finance? And if you go through with this, it'll be embarrassing. So I was just filled with such severe self-doubt. And one thing I've learned as an artist, as an entrepreneur, as a writer, is that anytime you're putting your work out there for the public to judge, there is nothing scarier than that. I mean, that was really, really hard for me. So I quit writing the book and I, it wasn't a break. I had no intention of ever picking it up again. Wow. Yeah. So luckily a couple months later, a good friend, I, I confessed, I told her about it and she was like, Rachel, you have to finish this book. I really think you're onto something here. So mm-hmm. she gave me just the validation and encouragement I needed to pick it back up reluctantly. <laughs> the only reason I went through with publishing it is because I told myself, if I can just help one person, that is all I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I had that as my motivation, because I think if I had been out for some quick money grab, people would have seen right through that and the book wouldn't have done as well. Sure. And they, thank goodness I went through with it because it's really impacted thousands of people at this point. I think I have over 600 reviews on Amazon. So it's, wow. it's really changed people's lives. It's huge. It's huge. And I, I want to talk about how it's changed me, people's lives. But one thing I want to point out, Rachel, is um, I want to point this out to those that are listening right now. Notice that there wasn't the absence of self-doubt. Uh, so many times we think, okay, we're going to go ahead once we get the confidence, once we can finally put to bed self-doubt. You don't put them to bed. Like it's like a toddler. You put it to bed and it gets right back out again. Um, and you have to just be really good about beating it back. Or maybe a better analogy is like a whack-a-mole, like the, the mole keeps popping up and you have to like beat it with a hammer and know that it's going to pop up somewhere else. It's not the absence of self-doubt. It's not the absence of imposter syndrome. Even Rachel, who is now wildly successful, has done so many things you're still talking about imposter syndrome. You're still saying, oh yeah, it it pops its head up and I have to beat it back again. So I really want um, people to hear that when they're stepping out, the lines that were either drawn for them or maybe even they drew for themselves, whether that's a different degree or a different industry, going from a W-2 earner to um, a business owner, you've got to go ahead. You can't wait for that to be silenced. You have to go ahead without it. Yes, 100% agree. It's never going to go away. It's never going to not exist. The timing is never going to be right. And what's funny to add to that is that when I launched my second book, I was thinking to myself, well, I'm a pro, I'm confident, this isn't going to affect me the way it did the first time. And you know what? The imposter syndrome hit me even harder when I launched my second book. It was awful. And I think the issue I had then was just comparison. My first book had done so well. So I, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself feeling like, I need to launch an even better book this time. And that's Mm -hmm. not a fair thing to do. You can't compare one book to another when you're an author or business owner with anything. So it really hit me hard again. It was such severe anxiety that I was experiencing for the three weeks leading up to launch. But it's just the perfect example that it will never go away completely. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, let let me ask another question around that and then we'll dive into the book and, and how it has changed people's lives. How do you move past that? What's your technique for whether that's, you know, the, the voice in your head saying, oh, it's not going to be good enough or, or your voice isn't valuable, whatever that is. How do you move past it? Do you have techniques? Do you listen to a pump up song? Do you call a friend? What do you do? Yeah, I think, and maybe this isn't good advice, but I've learned to suppress it as much as possible. I, I definitely will call friends and family for encouragement if I need it. Um, and that's always helped. I mm. think with money, honey, I... I just had to suppress it and get through lunch and just, I know, I remember feeling like a fraud even during lunch and after lunch because I kept promoting it. And I remember just not believing in myself and not believing in my product a hundred percent. But here's what helped me in the end, because you can go to your family and friends and they'll, they'll pump you up all, all you want. The thing is, I just have always taken that with a grain of salt, I guess, because they're your family and friends. I mean, they're going to be nice to you. So it wasn't until I don't know, maybe about six months into writing Money Honey that I started getting all of these emails from random people on the internet, random strangers that had read my book, people I didn't even know. And I was getting several emails per week saying things like, thank you so much for writing this book. You know, this book has changed my life. I've paid off all my student loans. I've paid off my credit card debt. And once I started seeing that, then I took another look at it and I was like, you know what? I've written a really good book and I'm going to get behind this 100% now. And I'm never going to let the imposter syndrome impact me that way again. Wow. That's powerful. And it's it's interesting. One thing, um, one thing I always think about is if you think about a book that's really made an impression in your life. So maybe it's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or when you think about your favorite business book or mindset book or, or financial literacy book, and you think, man, what if he didn't write that? What if she never sat down and put pen to paper? What if Robert Kiyosaki wasn't sitting there on a nice Hawaii afternoon and he said, no, I'm just going to go surfing. I'm going to write this book. It's fine. Thank God he did. You know, and there's so many books like that. And so when we, when we, I, I find it's very helpful to frame it like that. Like what if this book that really had a profound effect on my trajectory, what if the author never penned that? And that often can provide motivation. And no, 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 you've got to get your content down. There's people out there, a phrase I use a lot with uh, clients is, there are people out there that are Googling what's already on the inside of your head. So it is incumbent upon you. You have to share it because people are suffering um, and you can solve that for them. Oh, I love that. And I firmly believe everyone has a unique voice and a unique gift that they can share with the world. Mm -hmm. And you can't just not do it because you're not the expert in your field. Like Mm -hmm. I could have easily said, well, I'm not Dave Ramsey. I'm not Susie Orman. So why, you know, what's the point of me writing this book? Well, it's because I'm in a different place than them. I can relate to other people that maybe they can't relate to. And that's true for anybody doing anything. Yeah. And I think it's a deviation from academia, too. I want to point this out, too, just because we talked about college at the beginning, is that um, I just got off the phone, actually, with a client who, you know, has a degree, has one or two master's degree, and she came from the academia world. And it's a bit of a struggle to kind of lean into the business world because I I have to remind her it's not a thesis. It's confidence in what you're saying because it's not it's not you don't have to put out a peer review journal. You have to have something that works and then you have to bring it to the people that need to hear it. And that looks a lot different than than academia. So it's it's about the value you're bringing to the marketplace. And do you speak their language? You you are speaking to someone totally different than Dave Ramsey. He does a great job, but he's got a very clear demographic and there are people that need to hear what he has to say. Um, but that in no way diminishes that there's so many people that needed to hear what you had to say. And I'm so glad you shared it. Yes, thank you. That's a great way of looking at it. I love that. We've created a free guide 
four simple steps to getting more done in less time. In these short videos, I quickly show you the four main steps to productivity, to getting more done, the right things done, but in less time. To download your free copy and have it in your inbox ASAP, go to pivot-me.com. Get the four simple steps to getting more done in less time. Join us now at pivot-me.com backslash multiply me. Tell us about the books and also the way, the impact that it's made on your readers' lives. Yeah. So money, honey, it's really the basics of money management. You know, it's budgeting, savings, debt payoff, investing, taxes, and insurance. So it's really for beginners because a lot of people my age and female millennials and even younger people, I think there's a stigma sometimes against younger generations that were, you know, like lazy and entitled. And that's fair. I think you'll have those people in every generation, right? Um, Everyone's different. But what I've seen from my friends is that they don't like that they don't understand money. They want to get their financial bleep together, as I say. You know, they have this motivation and they don't feel comfortable not understanding these things. So they definitely have the motivation and desire to learn. It's just about how do they learn? Where What's the resource? And unfortunately, we are in a financial education crisis. At no point in our lives are we taught how to manage our money. Then we're left as young adults to figure it out all on our own, which is really, really tough because we're already thrown into a career. We're thrown into all these different things and no one knows how to adult when they're first getting out of college. I still don't know how to adult. So I, I just wanted to make something that would make the topic of money accessible and easy to understand. And probably the most common feedback I get from my readers is that it feels like they're sitting down with a friend having coffee, just having Mm -hmm. a fun conversation, which I love. So I think it's finally made this topic, you know, people have tried to understand, they've tried to learn about mutual funds, but their eyes glaze over or they get bored or they fall asleep. So I think that young women have just been grateful to finally have something that really makes it easy and that's entertaining at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's speaking to them completely different than just some of the other authors that you mentioned. Um, That's a totally different approach. So it's going to resonate with a very different audience that's not getting spoken to. So um, how how is it? So is it reducing student debt? Is it increasing their income? Is it getting them into passive uh, income streams? I would imagine that's what your second book's about. How once they read it and they actually implement, execute on the things that you say, how's their life different? Yeah. So one of the concepts I I talk about in Money Honey is the golden number. And this is simply your monthly income minus your monthly expenses. So it's how much you're saving. I call that your golden number. And the focus should always be on increasing your golden number. Because if you want to make progress, saving up more money, paying off debt, the only leverage you have is that golden number, how much you're saving each month. Mm -hmm. So I talk about, you know, when when I teach in workshops, I'll say, hey, if you're trying to save up money quickly, what kinds of things do you do? And people will say, well, I'll eat out less. I'll make my coffee at home. I'll stop shopping. And all those responses are great. I also noticed over time that those responses have a common theme. We're all focused on decreasing our expenses. That's where we go first because it's the easiest thing to do. Mm -hmm. The thing is, there's only so much you can do to decrease your expenses. You can't stop grocery shopping, right? You have to have food. You can't Mm -hmm. stop paying your rent or your mortgage. So there's a little bit of a limit. Mm -hmm. I always tell people there are two ways to increase your golden number. Number one is to decrease your expenses. Number two, I'm sure you already know, is to increase your income. And what I love about increasing your income is there's no cap on how much money you can make in a year. There's nothing stopping you from going out and making more money. That's another reason I love to sell Cutco. 
So you can, if you really want to make an impact on your budget and on your golden number, you'll focus on doing both decreasing your expenses and increasing your income. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. So that's why I was emphatically um, agreeing with you, Rachel. I always talk about the bath bathtub analogy. And so you can either plug holes at the bottom of the bathtub or turn on faucets. And so it's kind of interesting in our house because when my husband and I talk about finances, his, his natural tendency is to plug holes. And I always turn on faucets. I never talk about, you know, saving out. He's like, well, we could this or we could that when, when we're, um, you know, kind of casting for the future. And I immediately go, all right, let's just turn on a bunch of taps. It's fine. We're going to turn on the taps. And so that that is an interesting dynamic, but um, completely agree because the amount of savings you can do is, is finite. Either you can, you can't get it down to zero. And even if it got down to zero, then it, then it ends. But the amount of taps that you can turn on is uh, unlimited. Exactly. It's about growing the gap between your income and your expenses as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And April, you kind of alluded to another benefit of focusing on the income is that typically when you're focused on decreasing your expenses, you have to sort of reduce your quality of life. You have to give up things. You have to mm -hmm. stop going out to dinners with friends, stop going out for drinks. And while that's doable and that's fine, and I've done that many times before, I would just rather make more money so that I can still do the things that I want to do. Totally. Totally. So let's talk, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but what, what the decisions that you've made and the life that you have now, what do you get to do? because of, of the decisions that you made? Like what quality of life do you get to have? What What is available to you now because of those decisions? So life is definitely great right now. It's been, ever since I was able to quit my job last year, it's been so fun. You know, I say that I'm retired, but that doesn't mean I'm not working, right? I use the words retired and financially independent interchangeably. So now it's about working when, where, and if I want. And having that freedom, having that control over not only my time, but my location, is the best thing ever. I mean, it's a ton of fun. I typically get up, I work a few hours a day, I'm done by the afternoon, I will relax, I'll exercise, I'll hang out with my husband, and that's how a typical day goes. And what's even cooler, I was telling you about this earlier, but this frees up the opportunity for us to be wherever we want to be. So next year, something we're thinking about doing is taking a whole year to travel around the West US. And that's something I never would have been able to do just one year ago. Yeah. Earlier, you were talking about that one of the things that set you apart is that you always made sure that you focus on execution. What are some things that really, um, dare I say, keys to success, but something something along the lines of, okay, these, these things really made all the difference. I executed, I made bold moves, th things like that. What have, what were your keys? I would say there's there's two things that I do, and I I procrastinate as much as anybody else. It's something that I always struggle with. But here's the thing: I've realized over time that I normally build it up in my mind to be way bigger than it actually is. I remember early this year when I wanted to update my website, I kept putting it off. I was like, "This is going to be a huge project." When I actually sat down and did it, it only took a few hours, and I was like what were you thinking? Why did you wait so long to do this? That was so easy. So one thing I do, if I notice that I keep pushing something off, I'll just have an honest conversation with myself. And I'll be like, why am I pushing this off? If mm -hmm. I sat down and did this, how much time do I think it's going to take versus let's be realistic? And how much time do I think it'll actually take? Mm -hmm. So it's just having those conversations with yourself. And then another thing that's really helped me is breaking down tasks into the smallest steps possible. Mm -hmm. So whether that's a project or whether it's a financial goal, I will say, what is the absolute tiniest thing I can do today to get me closer to my goal, mm -hmm. right? So if you want to pay off a debt, 
maybe what you do today is you look up your balance. That's all you do. And then you write down all the different tiny little steps and you just do one per day because tiny progress every day will add up over time and you'll get somewhere versus just putting it off. You'll never get anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we we talk about is um, we just need the momentum. It's like a merry-go-round. And if it's at, if it has no momentum, if it's not moving at all, it's hardest to go from zero to one. So just making even the tiniest of gestures, then you've got momentum. And then from one to two is easier, two to three is easier. But just taking some little tiny bite of that elephant makes it so much easier to go after. It's, it's a great solution to procrastination. And I love that you say, I still struggle with it. And again, what we have to hear there is, even even now, this is still a struggle, um, but she just finds ways to navigate around it. Yes, for sure, a struggle. Sometimes another thing that helps is I'll just get so fed up with myself and I'll be like, this has been on my to-do list for months now. What's the deal? I'll just get so fed up with myself that I'll be like, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing it right now. I'm not going to put it off for another second because I get angry at myself. So mm-hmm. sometimes letting those emotions also propel you to do something can be helpful. <laughs> sure, leverage it. So what um, mentors, I know you enjoy, you're a, a voracious reader as well, um, whether that's um, authors or speakers, who, who are your mentors? One of my favorite authors is Tim Ferriss. I will read anything that he writes. He's amazing. Four-hour work week is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of, I actually do have a book mentor now that I'm working with, Honoré Quarter. She is amazing. So she partnered with Hal Elrod to expand the Miracle Morning series. She's written over 50 books. She is like the expert in the book publishing world. So mm-hmm. one of the, I think, mistakes that I've made in the past is almost being too frugal with investing in myself and investing in my business because frugality can also be a flaw if you're too extreme. You know, if you're extreme in anything, that can be bad. And I think I waited too long to invest in getting help. You know, I I was able to run my business successfully on my own for a long time, but then I definitely felt that I was hitting a wall and I didn't know how to take it to the next level and really scale it. So finally, I took the step, I invested in Honoré's Mastermind, I started working with her and it has been one of the best decisions I've ever made. I'm so grateful for her and she's been an, an amazing mentor. Oh, that's fantastic. I, that's such a good thing to point out. We we talk a lot about that as well. We're huge fans of coach. I coach people. I also have coaches, will always have coaches and advisors that I work with um, and being parts of masterminds too. Both leading them and being a part of a mastermind has been critical because uh, you can you know, you're learning from other people that are behind you in the process, ahead of you in the process. And it's not even just about the expertise, which is very important. It's also about the accountability and being tied to something that's holding you to your best self. Um, 100%. And we miss that, right? We miss that all the high performers, they all have coaches, whether they're athletic or in, in different fields, they all have coaches. And so that's such an important part. And that's also a piece that is overlooked investing in our personal development. Right now, we are, okay, well, you can have a book. Maybe you can go to a personal development conference, but we forget to take it to the next level of no, 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 have a mentor, have a coach, have someone who's going to take you to that next level and hold you accountable to it. Yeah, right. Because I realized that I could continue to operate at the same level and I was doing fine. I was making a decent amount of money, Mm -hmm. but if I wanted to grow my business, how was I going to do that unless I surrounded myself with people that were already five or 10 steps ahead of me? That's the only way you can learn is from someone who's done it before and who's done a good job. Mm -hmm. So I realized it's time to invest. I need to have a paid coach. I need to have a paid mentor something. And I definitely recommend that every business owner does that. Good for you. Good for you. It's interesting. I, um, on, uh, a previous conversation we were having, we were talking about being cheap with your time and a lot of people will pride themselves, pride themselves on their frugality, 
And it really becomes such a limiting mindset because then they become cheap with their time. We were, we were just talking about on the last podcast how some people will, you know, oh, I drive an hour to see the family mechanic because, you know, then I get a discount. And I'm like, well, that served you in your income bracket five years ago. Doesn't serve you anymore. Or, well, I can do this myself. Never ask, can I do this myself? We got to ask the question, should I do this myself? Because you end up being the bottleneck to your success. Oh, that is so true. I've always said, you know, you have two resources you're working with here, time and money. Mm -hmm. So at, at one point, yeah, maybe it does make sense to drive 20 minutes out of your way to the cheaper gas station because maybe you your money is so scarce. That's what you have to do. Totally get that. Sure. But at some point you're going to grow, you're going to be making more money and then you have to revisit. Is this something I should still be doing? And chances are it's probably not. Yeah. Another thing I've learned about time too, April, is that I feel like when I was first starting out in my business and even now, you know, people say they, they tell you, say yes to every opportunity that comes your way. Right. Yeah. Now, I feel like when you're first starting out, it makes some sense, right? Sure. You're hustling. You want to get yourself in front of people. However, the mistake I made is that I didn't realize that that would become false at some point. Like mm -hmm. that advice would actually really hurt me because you're going to get more and more opportunities. And if you keep saying yes to all of them, you're not going to have time to do everything else. Sure. I realized that my calendar was filling up with everyone else's priorities, but mm -hmm. my own. And it was an enormous problem. I struggled with burnout because of it, anxiety because of it. So I had to learn that saying no is actually a much more powerful response than saying yes. And if you say no to things, it can open up doors for even greater things in the future. Yeah. So I am very protective about my time. I'm viciously protective. And I learn to say no as much as possible now. Yeah, that's so important. We actually talk about having a yes, no list. Because when we say yes to one thing, we're saying no to something else. You, you brought up a really great point of at first when you are, whether it's young or whether you're new in business, you're saying, yes, you're getting in front of people, you're taking the opportunities, but there is a point where that transitions and we don't often know it until after we've passed it. And then we're like, oh man, I should have done this two years ago. We don't realize we passed the point where no, 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 now you need to start saying no. Um, I find that burnout is usually the hallmark of that. Burnout is the sign of like, oh, I passed it. And it was like, a, it was like a year ago, unless we've got mentors or coaches that can say, hey, just so you know, now it's time to really protect your time, your most precious resource. Um, but I find more often than not, it's, we get burned out. And then we oh just say no. Yeah. And I'm so glad you said that because when it happened for me, when it was at its worst was at the end of 2018. And I talk very publicly and openly about mental health because I think there's an unfortunate stigma about it. But I was so buried in my to-do list, so stressed out and felt I had such little control over my time and my schedule. It started as burnout, led into anxiety, and then led into depression that year. Mm. And it was a really tough time. Like, I remember feeling this hopeless feeling of, I don't feel like myself anymore, and am I ever, ever going to feel like that again? And that was tough. I think anyone can be prone to depression, to anxiety. Definitely, you know, entrepreneurs, because sometimes we don't have good boundaries <laughs> and we work too much. Um but one thing that you said really resonated because I didn't have a mentor at the time. I didn't have someone on the outside looking at me and saying, I think you're struggling and here's here's why I think you're struggling. Because yeah. that would have really helped me a lot sooner because what happened is it took me months to understand, oh, I'm struggling and I need help. And mm -hmm. it took me four months to get myself out of that. So important to have a mentor early on and it's important to just protect your time as much as you can. Yeah. 
so important. When you see people that have sort of got out of the proverbial rat race, right? They've got so much passive income that they really don't need to work. They just do it by choice or maybe don't do it at all. Um, what's the commonalities you see? Like, where's the through line on those people? Is it consistent execution? Is it really good habits? It's they've got a really good idea and they went after it. Have you noticed a trend between those? I honestly, I think it's execution. I think the separator definitely comes down to execution because I could count, I could tell you a hundred people that have had a good idea and haven't done anything with it. Right. It doesn't matter if you have the best idea in the world. If you have a $10 million idea, it's not worth $10 million unless you execute it and put it into place. So I think that is what truly separates people. Yeah, absolutely. Execution. I'm a big fan of it. We, we often use the phrase, uh, violent execution on our team, um, which I think is a general patent quote, but, um, we have to practice violent execution done is better than perfect. Just keep moving ahead because, um, so many people do have a million dollar idea and it's sitting in their garage. Um, and it'll never see the light of day because we yeah. consistently execute. And you're speaking to it's I almost laughed when you said done is better than perfect. I should have that written down everywhere <laughs> in my house because, you are talking to the biggest type A control freak perfectionist on this planet. Yeah. And that also holds you back. I mean, you, just have to, you have to get it done. It doesn't have to be perfect. That's a struggle for me that I'm still working on, but I've made a lot of progress. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's tough with the book because you keep wanting to revise it over and over again. At some point, you have to put the pen down. Yeah. 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 It's never done. It's never perfect, but it's, no. it's done. No, it's never perfect. And that's the other thing I, I really want to hear um, is that it's not, it's not perfect. Like you don't get it to the point, whether it's a book or a speech or you don't get it to the point. You're like, Oh, it's perfect. It's, it, it says everything I needed to say. You talk to authors, um, authors that have had very successful books, lots of impact, and they still go, yeah, I would have changed a thing. You know, I would add this chapter. I would take it out because I think people are looking for that perfect. It doesn't exist. It just has to be good enough. Get it out there. Is it going to make an impact? Is it going to change people's lives? Is it going to change people's perspective? And it's going to put this, this um, you're going to have this profound effect on people. Then you got to get it out because they don't know that that chapter is missing in your head. You just got to get it out. That is so true. That's one of the reasons I'm actually about to release the second edition of Money Honey. <laughs> and because, I mean, yeah. obviously it was a great book. I mean, it did really well. But three years later, I'm like, yeah, there's maybe there's some updates, some changes I can make. But that's what you can tell yourself is you can always update it later. You can mm -hmm. always perfect it later if you need to, but get it to the point where you can go ahead and launch it and get it out to the public now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you, you said you're now getting mentors and coaches, was there a reason why you um, transitioned over to that? Is it that you realized, hey, I really need this? Or you saw somebody else that had a mentor and a coach and you were inspired by that? I'm curious where that, where that pivot happened. It happened after I quit my job. And so it was the first time I'd been able to work on my business full time and really dedicate the time to it. Yeah. Because before that, it was more distracted focus, distracted effort. So yeah. I would do what I could possibly do to get by in the evenings and on the weekends. Now I sat down and I had all this time ahead of me and I was like, oh, okay, what do I do? What, do, what are I my start? goals? I mean, how do I grow this? So I think I was beating my head against the wall for a little bit, feeling pretty lost, realizing that it would be great to have somebody that could help me strategize because that's what I really needed was the strategy. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I started looking for different masterminds and found Andre. Oh, that's awesome. So actually, the last person I just interviewed for the podcast um, wrote with Hal, um, Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. 
Oh my so, gosh, that's so cool. Yeah, Small World. Cameron Harold was the last person I interviewed. So nice. uh, when you mentioned that, I was like, well, that seems like an odd coincidence. But here yeah. we are. Uh, I'm a big <laughs> fan of Miracle Morning. Um, they have a savers that breaks down. You know, it's so simple, you know, so simple morning routine. Huge fan of a morning routine. But they did a great job at really simplifying it and saying, okay, here's here's the nice comprehensive morning routine. And here's a more abbreviated one. If you only have six minutes, you can bang it out in the morning. So um yeah, I would say Miracle Morning is definitely like top three books that have changed my life. Okay, give us the other ones. Give us, give us cool. your top three. What are the others? <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, The Millionaire Fastlane by mm -hmm. MJ DeMarco. So amazing because it's really about how to change your mindset from a consumer mindset to a producer mindset. Mm -hmm. And it kind of reminded me of Tim Ferriss' book, A Little Four Hour Workweek. So mm -hmm. just love that one. Um, third book, I might have to get back to you on that. Would it be the four hour work week? It could be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll just, we'll say four hour work week. Cause okay. I love that one. Yeah. It is so good. It is good. That, that also is a pretty big paradigm shift, right? I mean, what Tim was suggesting was so radically different than what, you know, it, it ran contrary to the hustle and grind, the long days and long, long nights. And he was saying something completely different, like, nope, automate all of this, you know, to totally change it changed the approach for so many people. It's really made a profound effect on a lot of people too. Exactly. He was so ahead of his time. I mean, mm -hmm. now like I consider his whole book to be about passive income, right? How do you run your businesses passively? How do you create passive income streams? It goes hand in hand for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For people that are listening that are saying, I want passive income too. I, I, I'm familiar with the idea. I love the idea. How, how do I stop trading um, time for money? What's a couple of things that you could tell them right away? Like here, here's what you need to do or here get, get Rachel's book, definitely get Rachel's book. Um, but what can you tell them, um, that they can execute on right away? So the first thing is, is to decide between time versus money, which do you have more of? So for example, I'll make this a little more concrete. If you have a lot of money that you can invest to create passive income, maybe you could do something like portfolio income or rental income, right? So you can invest it in the stock market. You can make dividends. You can invest it in a rental property or even a turnkey rental property service so that you don't have to do anything and just collect the checks. It's mailbox money. So mm -hmm. that's what you could do in that scenario. Now, if you have more time and you don't really have money, then you're going to want to look at some other different categories. For example, royalty income is a perfect one for people that have time, but not a lot of money. So this is something like writing a book, creating an online course, mm -hmm. creating digital products that can be downloaded off Etsy that you can create once and that people can download again and again. So those types of things. When I wrote Money Honey, it took nine months. That's including the period of time that I quit. I did it around my full-time job in the evenings and on the weekends, and I spent less than $600 to launch the book. So it's a very attainable income stream for many people. Sure. Another thing I would say for people starting out, there's advice that's given sometimes that I don't agree with to people that are starting a side hustle or want to be an entrepreneur. And the advice is that you should take a leap of faith and the net will appear. <laughs> and I hate, I hate that advice. For some people it works, right? Because it lights a fire under you. If you just decide I'm going to quit my job and and do this thing, it can mm -hmm. light a fire, it can work. But I feel like for most people, it's that's really scary to do. Mm -hmm. And probably not wise, right? You have to have some type of financial plan, some type of exit strategy in place. There is no reason you can't start doing building passive income in the evenings and on the weekends. There's no reason. Mm -hmm. So I would say keep working your full time job and still until you are confident in your income stream, and it's consistently bringing in money every single month, mm -hmm. and then have an exit strategy and plan that out from the beginning. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, sound, sound advice. Uh, that is a common adage right now. That's a very common thing people are saying, like leap and the net will appear. Um, hopefully it does. Uh, yeah. sometimes, it does. sometimes it's the kind of motivation people need to really right. push them ahead. Um, but it, it doesn't always work out that way. So executing on a plan consistently, like you said, you know, okay, keep the, keep the day job um, just while you're building up this other thing. And then when it's consistently bringing in income, you can lean into that so much with, with so much more confidence than like, oh, shit, I hope this works. Um, yeah, exactly. Good. Because if you like quit your job, the last thing you want to do is be operating out of a place of panic and desperation, mm-hmm. which if you don't have any money coming in, that's probably how you're going to feel. So that's why it, it's just better to have that exit strategy, because then when you quit, you're going to have the peace of mind and feel confident in the money that you already have coming in. Yeah, absolutely. So Rachel, what's uh, what's next for you? What's next for me? I am, so I'm learning actually to, that I don't have to try to have a goal all the time and try to monetize everything I do. And now that I've quit my job, my goal is to slow down and recharge and reset a little bit. So I am trying to do things for fun and have hobbies that I'm not trying to make money off of. (laughs) One of those is actually fiction writing. When I was a little kid, I always would write short stories and it's always been a dream of mine to write a novel. So I've been dabbling in fiction. I'm pretty bad at it, but it's, it's just for fun. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> and then I think ne- next year I'm, I'm thinking about having a mastermind for women who want to create passive income. So mm. more to come on that. Oh, that would be amazing. And so needed. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Rachel, where, where do, uh, where do we find you? Where do we connect with Rachel at? Yeah. So both of my books, Money, Honey, and Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement are on Amazon, ebook, paperback, audio. And then what I'd love to do for your audience is to give them my Passive Income Starter Kit for free. So if anyone wants to go download that, you can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com slash bonus. Perfect. And we'll put that link in the show notes as well. So we've got a couple places to get it. Awesome. Rachel, thanks so much for for the information that you provided and the insight and just the the realness of, hey, this was the backstory and this is how I got here and and there were some hurdles, but this is how I overcame them. It's really valuable information. Thank you, April. It was so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for dialing in today. And don't forget, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love what you hear, give us a five-star review. It means the world to us. Hit me up on Instagram at the April Garcia or check us out online at pivot-me.com. This is all made possible with the support of you listeners, the numerous contributors and our clients. Our music and production is by the amazing Rockwood Audio. Join me next time for more tips on how to hack success. And until then, make it a great day. Thanks, guys. You guys are amazing.